We're back to 1 Corinthians 15. Uh, last Sunday, uh, we actually covered verse 12 through 20. But we'll actually pick up verses 20, starting with 20 again, because it, that verse is actually hinging point. And, and to uh, verses 28, here's a little recap and background. The first thing that we need to remember is Paul presents the, the resurrection of Christ first. And not only evidence, but as the introduction of the entire doctrine of resurrection of the believers as well. Why is it important? Resurrection of Christ is the heart of the gospel. Christ's resurrection is validation, God's validation of Christ's atoning work on the cross that he actually substituted in our place to pay the penalty of our sin. But that Lamb of God, in the, through the, throughout the Old Testament, was required to be blameless, spotless. That is actually pointing to Jesus as a sinless, perfect human, as well as perfect God. Now, how do you validate, validate that? Any, anybody can say, I want to die for someone. But by raising him up, God is saying he is the propitiation. God satisfies sacrifice for our penalty of sin. And we'll find out a little more about that in today's passage. So the resurrection is not the addendum or the side story or some kind of a sprinkle on a cake. But it is the heart of the gospel. Once again, let me remind you, the first century Christians, early Christians, when they talked about sharing the gospel, witnessing, their witness was about the risen Christ. And for, for the fact that we need to continually focus on the um, Resurrection is actually uh, helping us to re be reminded to live on the resurrection life. The Christ is risen. Uh, we need to continually live with that faith rather than theoretical faith, but in reality, our life is dead. Our faith is dead in action. And secondly, the resurrection of the dead is indispensable to our salvation. The reason why Paul brought it up, the issue of resurrection, is because there is a problem in the Corinthian church. Some did not believe because, once again, because of their philosophy, Greek philosophy and culture, they did not believe the resurrection of the dead. One, one, in one side is a pure uh, physical 
side of living. Uh, in many of our hedonistic culture is that eat and drink and tomorrow we die. And the other side was the dualism, the spirit is good and physical is bad. Real, what's real is in, invisible and spirit things, invisible, uh, physical body is prison of our real being. So we, I mentioned that because of that, they believe somehow the spirit being uh, continuing on, but the, without the physical body. The resurrection was unnecessary. And as you could sense, today in an evangelical world, there is an incomplete picture of what human being is in, in, in God's design. The human being is not just a soul without this useless body that we can't wait until we get out of this container or prison, but actually the full consummation of God's salvation includes our body as well. So logically, this makes sense, right? Paul wants to talk about the resurrection of the dead, but he, he presents the evidence for Christ's resurrection first, and then he asks, then what if there is no resurrection? Without it, it not even Christ has been raised, our faith and Christian message are in vain, and we are still in sin, and we have no hope facing death. Because all who died in Christ have perished, lost, nothing there. And we are, of all people, most to be pitied. Because that taking up the cross and following Christ is a dying to self, and there is a sacrificial component of true Christianity, unlike our uh, consumer-oriented Christianity that centers around me and my pleasure and my needs. So today, the question that we're asking, in light of all this, so what, what does Christ's death make a difference? Make the difference. In other words, what is the radical effect that the resurrection of Christ brought to us? And let me give you just four thoughts as we begin. Lest we begin with uh, unassumingly, by default, in man-centered perspective. Man-centered perspective looks like this. We begin with our physical, emotional, spiritual needs. Man, human beings, and our needs. Rather than God's purpose and God's glory. So what happens is, anything that doesn't apply to me, we block out. So fourth thought is this. The Christ's resurrection is much more than about our resurrection only. The scale is huge, eternal, boundless. So in that thought, here's the first radical effect. The resurrection has 
the radical effect on us as the first fruits of all who died in Christ. He makes that link. That's why the verse 20 is the hinging point. Verse 20, but in, in effect, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Romans 8, verse 11, Paul puts it in the other way. As, um, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, all New Testament believers, because of the new covenant, Holy Spirit resides in us, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. I'm a city boy. And many of you, like me, have no idea what farming looks like. Some of you do into a little gardening. But just think about this. A vast majority of people in, in, in antiquity knew about farming. So when they heard the word first fruits, it was clear what that meant. If I would, would use the word for our generation, we'll say something like, Christ was the prototype. Christ was the forerunner. Or something like that. It makes a little more sense. But Paul used the word first fruits. All the farming countries and their culture knew, knew, knew and understood that first fruit meant the beginning of harvest. There are more to come. Guarantee. If I put it even in Ephesians 1 language, it is a deposit to, to assure what's coming, coming after that. Okay, moreover, for Jewish people, Hebrews understood far more than any farming country people. Why? Because first fruit was a command in Mosaic law in Leviticus chapter 3 verse to begin with the God commanded every season when there is a harvest the first fruit were gathered they were commanded to gather and offer to the Lord and the priest will say now you may go harvest not until then the first fruits were given an offer to God and they were begin to reel the vast majority of their harvest is there. The first fruit was just the beginning portion of that to show God their honor and their top priority in their lives. So in similar sense, our giving, biblical giving, has to be the first fruit rather than afterthought. Right? But think about this. Paul's saying, first fruit. Christ's resurrection was the first fruit. And some of us, wait a minute. Didn't Jesus raise Lazarus from the dead? Didn't Jesus raise that little girl, the daughter of Jairus? And didn't 
Isaiah, prophet Elijah, uh, prophet Elijah raised someone from the dead. And all true. In that sense, Apostle Paul is not saying Christ is the first one. But if you look at the difference between Christ's resurrection and all other people, we should actually should call it resuscitation. Eventually, they all died. The Christ's resurrected body will never die. Imperishable, immortal body. That is the first fruit. And when we are raised, when we shall be raised from the dead, we will join him in that regard. That we will have no more death. But not in just our spirit, but our physical uh, salvation as well. That is an incredible thing, isn't it? So all believers in Christ now has a door through which we could en- enter. Christ, the first fruits. Number two, the Christ resurrection has a s- radical effect on us as the second Adam in whom all who are in Christ shall be made alive. Verse 21. This, this three verses. Um, open the door of my heart and my imagination. And these three verses are responsible for stopping at 28, verse 28. I was going to go all the way to 34. Because um, there's so much of it. Look at verse 21. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own, in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. 1 Corinthians was written, one of the first letters that Paul wrote. And then towards the end of his journey, while he's in Corinth, he wrote his longing letter, was a letter to Roman Christians. Romans was an elaboration of his gospel. And in Romans 5, he brings up this what he started as a preview. He elaborates on this principle of representation. First Adam was a real person. But at the same time, the word Adam meant men. Not men in a ma- male or ma- uh, female, that kind of sense only, but men in humankind. So Adam was a representation 
of God's creation and image, and he was created. And God had perfect environment for him, Garden of Eden. When God created him, he has divine plan and design for what life, human life, and relationship with God ought to be. But man, Adam, when he fell, it wasn't just the one sin that, that's, that he committed, oh, you know, well, I made a mistake, but sin came into his life. So watch this. What God created has been distorted. A lot of things are not what God created in even the way that our mind works, the way our relationship works, the way human society works, is not God's design. It's distorted, deformed way of living because of sin. And I call it first Adam. The second Adam, in other words, second representative of mankind, Christ came in. And this uh, theological concept, theological basis, very, very strong. Something that we need to continually meditate on. And Paul bases on it. So let me go to uh, Romans 5, verse 18 through 21. as a little bit of glimpse of Paul's thought in there. Verse 18, Therefore, as one trespass led to the condemnation of, for all men, so one act of righteousness, meaning Jesus, leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience he may, he, many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. In the beginning of my message, I mentioned that we need to have Different perspective going into the scripture, not starting with, let's not start with a man and man's knees, but let's look at God's purpose and God's glory. And this actually is an introduction going into that. When you think about this, some of you growing up heard this, and some of you kind of ignore these theological words. But it is really true, how, no matter how you put it, the one is original sin. Because of original sin in Adam, everyone who came from Adam are in that, participated in that original sin. Meaning that we are actually born with the nature, the sin nature that uh, caused by the Adam's fall. What is the consequence? The sin 
has pervasively corrupted our heart. The theological term is total depravity. So oftentimes we could misunderstand this concept of total depravity, meaning he's really messed up, totally messed up kind of thing, right? I'm not that messed up. I make, you know, mistakes here, and I get lazy here and lazy there. I I lie here and lie there, but I'm not like a, you know, rapist, and I'm not a, I'm not a a child abuser, I'm not a blah, 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 right? I'm not a murderer. When you think about this concept of total depravity, you think about this, there's a clean water, there's a drop of ink comes, comes down, blue ink, red ink, and the pervasively that water is intoxicated. If it's really the toxic that goes in, so in other words, pervasive means that every action, every area of our life, our thoughts and our sex life, our physical life, our finance life, everything has been affected by this sin. So what is the consequence? So this is the theological concept that we need to embrace. Satan shows up. He lures people to sin and gives its wage, the wage of sin, death to people. So that's why Satan, the evil one, is a, uh, the one who has a dominion over death, that he will be punished in, in, as well, right? But in a practical way, let me bring you to this. Because of a pervasive depravity, what we are actually experiencing is death. And as I mentioned in the beginning of the first message that we mentioned in 1 Corinthians, death is separation by biblical definition. The separation is, when you think about the, another biblical word, is alienation. That's why we feel utterly far away from God when we are in sin. When we don't repent, when we have this guilt ridden by heart. But Christ takes care of that guilt, right? But alienation with God is the beginning of that. We feel alienated by others too. When you really think about loneliness, how many men honestly confess that we're lonely in our marriage? I thought she would complete me. I thought he would complete me. Jerry Maguire lied. <laughs> God only completes you. So in our relationships, there's a tension and conflict and alienation from each other. And our body is alienated from the way that God designed us to. It's, this was not supposed to heading toward to death. But decaying happens even as we speak. And Christ came. From Adam to Moses, as the law reveals, rather than brings people to salvation, because the, the original sin and sin nature made impossible 
for people to reach the salvation by keeping the law. Incapable, right? So Adam and Moses, there's a death. And then Christ came by grace alone and through faith alone in Christ alone has brought this eternal life, resurrected life, that everything made all new. You are new creation. And at this point, if you're really thinking about through these things, the obvious question will come up, which is so popular in our culture. Well, Adam was the one person who brought the death to everyone. And Christ was the one person who brought life to everyone. Why can't everyone be saved and be happy? Why do we have to believe in Christ? Well, all rose, you know, head toward to the Rome. So maybe we, it doesn't matter. My non-Christian friends is a Hindu guy or the Muslim guy or gal. Maybe the moral person who, law-abiding person in Orange County can be saved too, maybe saved too. That's actually critical thought, but good thought. The theological answer, encouragement is always that. Don't stop there. Take a few steps further. Check this out, okay? Everyone who are born as a human being are under and in Adam. With original sin, total depravity, and death as its wage. But where is the life? The life is in, not the first Adam, second Adam, in Christ. Where is the life? Not in first Adam, but the second Adam. By grace, through faith, in Christ alone means that we have to repent and believe in Christ. And those who belong to Christ are in Christ. First, uh, first chapter of Ephesians, when Paul expounds this spiritual blessing, every blessing, you, you might want to circle how many, how many in Christ, in Him, in His Son. The preposition in is there. So many of them. So some of the... Uh, some of the theologians popularize this. When you sign in Christ, that means so much. In Christ, Paul. In Christ means that you are in the life of Christ. Okay, what if you choose to stay in, remain in Adam? Same problem. Sin, Satan, total depravity. And wage of sin is death. Spiritual death, spiritual, physical death, and eternal death happens. But because of Christ's resurrection, Christ was a new beginning, new prototype of mankind, second Adam. Whoever belongs to, to Christ, whoever is in Christ, has life. 
Not because you are better than the person over there. This is God's wisdom and God's mercy and God's grace, abundant grace for us through, through resurrection. So when you think about in this perspective, our salvation is much in a greater skill, scale. So it's not just because oh, I believe in Christ, I start praying and God giving me these gifts, physical uh, became wealthy and my uh, business has been really successful because Christ is my Lord now. Much more than that is actually we need to think about because the alienation from God and with God is gone. Now I actually walk with the Almighty God. I call him Abba. Abba, Father. For eternity, Christ will be my co-heirs. And because the work of the Holy Spirit as a deposit in my spirit, I begin to experience freedom from the power of sin, the alienation that sin created. So my relationships are being restored with my wife and my husband. And that's why, let me be honest with you. I have a little motto in my journal that I, that I wrote in my relatively young days, before, right before Kate showed up in my life. And I wrote, the validity of my public ministry is on the countenance of my wife. Don't get me wrong. I am not responsible for her happiness. I don't complain her. And she complains that Paul doesn't meet my need. So, oh, yeah, I'm, a, I'm messed up. I, <laughs> I confess, right? But I'm talking about it, whatever I think is spiritual, true spirituality happens, must start in my intimate relationship with my wife. Her countenance is the testimony of my spirituality. So I confess. I come short. I'm a sinner who needs God's mercy. And every day I fail. Even if I have a good intention, I fail. But Christ lives in me. I'm a new creation. I continually die to sin. The old self who lives in, who's under the reign of Adam, and goes to the reign of Christ. And I experience new life, renewal, revival. Not because of the efforts. So for those of you who have any kind of struggles because of this alienation, I encourage you and I challenge you to look to Christ and begin with God's purpose and God's glory. Seek first his kingdom, his reign, and his rule. Then all these things, he, he will add it unto you, including materialistic blessings as well.
But if you surrender your heart, then you will experience, I guarantee, the things that you could not have done in terms of restoring, renewing your marriage will begin to happen right here. And that is the gospel that we need to live out. In your marriage, in your relationship with your sons and daughters, in your fathers, your, your dad and your, your moms, or your broken friendships, not all it will be restored until the heaven things will be imperfect. The power of resurrected Christ will take you in a, another level of life. And I honestly ask you, do you see that? Do you believe that? Do you know that you belong to Christ? Do you know that your life and faith has to be congruent? Then don't live as if you're living under the reign of first Adam. We're talking about radical impact leads to radical discipleship. Number three, Christ's resurrection has the radical effect on us as the Lord of all who won the victory over all his enemies for the kingdom of God. This is the bigger scale and bigger scope that beyond our own resurrect, resurrection, upcoming resurrection. Verse 24. And by the way, did you see this? <clears throat> um, I'm missing one. I'm sorry. Verse 24, I'm sorry then comes to an end when he delivers the kingdom of God to the kingdom of God the father after destroying every rule and every authority and every power for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet the last enemy to be destroyed is death i was actually looking for that sentence last enemy to be destroyed is death. So we're going to actually, going into the climax of this chapter, the, at the end of the chapter is the declaration of death of death. The death of death. Christ has conquered this enemy for good. For those all who are in Christ, there will be no more death. Physically, spiritually, in all aspects. And I'm going to hold back the excitement because we're going to have to, you know, build up. Verse 27. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. Do you, do you begin to see it? When I said uh, God's sovereign plan and purpose and order has been distorted and tamed. And he's restoring not just an individual salvation only, but in a universal 
scale. Heavens and earth. But when he says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is, Christ is accepted, who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him, God the Father, who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. The first message of the first Corinthians, I quoted uh, Psalm 110.1. The Lord, Yahweh Lord, to said, My Lord, Jesus the Savior, Messiah, come, sit on my right hand until I put everyone, every enemy under your feet. This is a kind of mixture of spiritual language in you know, allegorical terms of uh, royal kingdom, the ancient, even probably these days also too, the king's seat, throne, was already high, always high. So king will look down, right? So everyone, his subjects and his enemies were brought down under his feet. That's the picture. Because of Satan and because of rebellion, because of the evil demons, fallen angels, and because of man's sin, the whole universe has been dis- disrupted. The restoration, and even in our you know, common language these days, spiritual formation is really popular term, right? I think really theologically correct terms should be spiritual reformation. Because what is spiritually formed in God's design has been deformed. Because of Christ, we reform the formation of the new creation within our hearts. Happens. What happens? Not only all the rebellious human beings, God cursing atheists atheistic evildoers who could care less about God or Jesus. They will be put under his feet. Along with that, all the demons and the Satan himself will be put under his feet. That is the power, radical effect of resurrection brings to us. So look at Christ now. He's the Lord of all lords, King of kings. And the heavenly hallelujah continues on. He's worthy to be praised. He's the Lamb of God who's sitting on the throne, who judges all. These are not just a religious burbage. This is a spiritual reality, meaning that this is eternal, true reality for all of us. And no wonder Paul is saying, if I make all these sacrifices, voluntary sacrifice, and take the suffering for the sake of Christ because of his resurrection, if there is no resurrection, I am most, we are, of all people, most to be pitied. 
So now, rather than thinking about people who are going into mission field and who are actually volunteering to community development, who are actually working with the poor, who are actually giving large significant amount of their life, I mean their, their, time, their time and their, their money, we should think about this. What is the true reality around me? If we have a glimpse of this heaven opened up to us, all of us will hit the floor and begin to say, Jesus, my Lord, I surrender. I submit to you. God is merciful. He waits until we obey and submit to us, submit to him. So good news is that because of his mercy and kindness, he prolonged his patient waiting. The day will come, the day of the Lord, that Jesus will come at his coming in every person's order. Remember that? Christ the first fruit has been raised first, and that those who died in Christ will raise next. And all those, some one generation will face no physical death because of Christ's coming will happen, eclipse in that. Let me bring you home with this. The really holy, radical, true spirituality emerges out of the right thoughts of God, right thoughts about God, and right thoughts about our salvation. So instead of setting aside, oh, doctrine is a little bit too hard for me, too heavy for me. No, we need to begin to face these things and, and get interested in the, in the Bible and study even more. And they really live out this way. For that reason, this is, oh, I'm sorry to show that, right? There is a book called, uh, John Piper's book is God is the Gospel. Very simple book. Well, it is really exciting. And I'm going to conclude my message with the excerpt from his book, God is the Gospel. By the way, the, uh, one thing I admire John Piper is he's living it out, he's, what he's saying to, to service unto the Lord. So any book that I mention is actually you could go to his website and read it free. PDF file. It's kind of burdensome to scroll down, but you could actually read it if you really want to. And if you really like it, there are a few, few books that I started doing that because uh, maybe I'll just read a few chapters. And I like this so much, I actually bought the hard copy. I don't get any loyalties from there, right? So I conclude with this. The best news, Piper writes, of the Christian gospel is that the supremely glorious creator of the universe has acted in Christ, Jesus Christ's death and resurrection to remove every obstacle between us and himself so that we may find everlasting joy in, in seeing and savoring his infinite beauty. 
the saving love of God is his doing whatever must be done at great cost to himself and for the least deserving so that he might enthrall them with what will make them supremely happy forever, namely himself. Therefore, the God, gospel of God and the love of God are expressed finally and fully in God's gift of himself for our everlasting pleasure. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Isn't that great? Am I just uh, humble? I really brotherly like exhortation to all of you is that this coming week, let's not look at our needs first. Let's look at God's purpose and God's glory. Think about resurrection and live out the principles that we are learning in our everyday life that Christ will be honored and exalted and that we will have a strength to face severe, difficult circumstances and trials. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful for what you have done for us and beyond. And I pray, Lord, in this man-centered, uh, needs-centered, self-preoccupied world, we will actually look to you and look to the greatness of your purpose and plan and your character attributes. And we will see your glory. But in yet, finding our fullness of joy there. As Jesus, you asserted that when we seek first the kingdom of God and everything that we need will be added unto us. So you are our most treasured joy, Lord Jesus. Be glorified in our hearts, in our families, in our church, and make us people who have this good news of resurrection God, a resurrection gospel. We pray all these things in the name of the Father, of the Son, of the Holy Spirit. Amen.